Haskell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello, welcome to the March 2018 Askell Podcast. It's been quite a month, so there's lots to get through. Hope you enjoy it. It's Professor Becky Francis, Director of the IOE. Tell us a bit about the IOE, for, for, in case there's someone on the planet who doesn't know about it. <laughs> so the Institute of Education has recently merged with UCL, so we're now about a quarter of UCL overall. Um, I have about 900 members of staff, um, and our main uh, activities are research and teaching. Um, we teach from undergraduate to teacher training to obviously masters and doctoral studies as well. Um, and we have, uh, as well as our sort of ma- massive research activities, six academic departments looking at everything from education and best practice and teacher training right through to broader social science, uh, psychology, both of education, health and so forth. It's been a huge fragmentation, hasn't there, to, you know, from the days when I trained to be a teacher where I think probably the only route was you did a PGC, you were therefore in a, an academic department, you had your time doing your uh, in-school practice, that, that was the way it worked. We now have an incredible sense of fragmentation. From where you are, what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses in terms of teacher training now? Well, I think that the system needs uh, better management. I mean, at the moment, we see a a big problem for recruitment, both for teaching across the board, but also entry into um, teacher training. And I think that the fragmentation and diversity there doesn't help in terms of the complexity that students have to navigate. Um, For our part, um, we do lots of um, collaborative um, schools direct work, for example, uh, where, where we are collaborating with schools. We're also the biggest um, deliverer of Teach First in the southeast. Um, but also, of course, we maintain our own PGCE uh, direct programmes. And to be honest, it's those that we're finding recruitment is best for. I guess that having the strength of a university brand, especially one like UCL and the IOE, um, helps us in that regard. And students sort of recognise the product and what they're getting. I just want to ask you one last thing and see if I understand this right. People talk a lot, so we've got the Chartered College and so on, about uh, teachers and research and looking at research to inform best practices on. And I have to say I've never been convinced by that, if what it means is teachers as researchers, because it seems to me that kind of is playing at the process. What, what I understood is it's about teachers understanding from research what they could then use in the classroom. I mean, what's your perspective on it? I mean, that would be absolutely my feeling as well, Jeff. Um, I think that what we need is for teachers to be research literate. They need to be able to uh, take research findings and assess them, uh, not necessarily in detail, but to have some view about validity, uh, generalizability, and so forth, to be able to assess the implication of those research findings for their practice or not. Um, so they need to be sort of intelligent consumers of research if you like um, and so we've got this uh, this recruitment crisis in teaching so, so what's the solution <laughs> I think it's, it's complicated, of course, but the issues about workload and the um, really difficult communications, I think the perceptions about teaching as a career at the moment really need addressing. And I think that the DfE is beginning to see that and beginning to do things. Um, obviously, it's advertising campaign and so forth, but also look at policies to help teachers 
issues about workload uh, need addressing, um, issues of professionalisation. Um, I'm on the working group looking at how we support teacher careers for the Department of Education, looking at, for example, potentially extending and strengthening QTS, um, but looking at um, development of teachers within that period, and really about support and greater strength in mentoring and so forth, because we know that as well as um, the challenges for recruitment, uh, also retention is a massive issue for our sector at the moment. Um, that is very much, I think, about supporting teachers better in the early years of teaching, but also about celebrating the profession better. So we need both. Actually, you said in there something really, well, I, I think is, is perhaps the most important thing. We, we almost need to reprofessionalise teaching. I don't know when we lost it. And so there are things which the government, of course, can do. But ultimately, it's about us doing that as well, isn't it? I think that's exactly right. We need to seize this, even though, um, you know, it's a difficult situation. Every cloud has a silver lining. I think there's an opportunity here for the profession to take control of this, uh, set out the path as to what teaching should look like in England in the 21st century. It does need to be an exciting profession and one of which the teaching profession themselves have ownership. I think that... Um, um, innovations like the uh, Chartered College will help with that if we support it um, but really we need to work together now I think that the recruitment crisis is really telling us that things haven't been working so far teachers can't be responsible for everything particularly if they're not in the driving seat um, so we need to give back to, to the profession, um, allow them a bit more autonomy than they've had, but also support them in, for example, um, their um, ability to um, manage the curriculum, create the curriculum, and so forth. I think our schools have a lot of autonomy in our system, but teachers don't, and I think that needs to change. Did right. It's Russell Hobby, I'm Chief Exec of Teach First. In a nutshell, what is it? The, the nutshell version of Teach First is that we get people who might not otherwise think about teaching to go and teach in schools that might not otherwise get all of the teachers that we need. And I think that's, given today's recruitment challenges, that's an essential job to do. We, uh, we don't claim to have the, all the best teachers. We don't claim that nobody else is trying to solve the issues of poverty. We're all trying to do that. But there are some schools that are at the back of the queue. Um, uh, and we try and make sure that they, they get all the teachers they need. In my days as a head over there in kind of rural Suffolk, we used to look on in the early days of Teach First Envy thinking well you know what about us that has changed doesn't it in terms of what Teach First does and where it goes yes about two-thirds of our teachers are now placed outside of London um, uh, and that's a trend that needs to continue I wouldn't say we'd solve London it's a fragile situation but we're increasingly waking up as a country to the fact that our rural suburban and coastal schools are facing great challenges and the recruitment challenges are also significant there particularly if we want to get people to move out of the cities and come and invest in these communities they've got a lot to offer but it's often hidden um, so we've got to do some work to, to persuade people of that. And finally, there was an announcement this week I saw which was to do with a kind of leadership development programme. Just give us a flavour of that. Well, one thing I've noticed is that the thing that makes teachers stay in a school is good quality leadership, uh, and that's what helps them grow and thrive and develop into people who can make a difference for the pupils. So I'm really interested in making sure that as well as putting great teachers into schools, we're working with the leadership teams um, to help them make the most of those. So uh, as part of the government's TLIF funding, we've been uh, awarded a contract to, to deliver to schools in opportunity areas a whole team development over two years basic skills of leadership but also that wider picture and vision uh, but all focused on schools serving the most
most challenging communities. Crystal Hobby, thank you very much. My pleasure. So Mary Myatt. And, and tell us what you do. So basically what I do is I work in schools talking to pupils, teachers and leaders about learning leadership in the curriculum. And you and I go back uh, a little way because you used to work in Suffolk for the uh, local authority. Just remind us right. what you did there. I, I supported school improvement and I also had responsibility for religious education. So the legal aspects is that as well as um, supporting subject knowledge for teachers as well. And you're going to talk about hopeful schools mm. or hopeful leadership. Mm. Uh, what, what, why is that so important right now? Well, um, it's certainly tough out there at the moment. Um, no school leader needs some um, affirmation of that from, from a third party. But um, I think it's important to remember just how far we've come, that overall the situation is better than it was 20, 50 years ago in terms of um, teachers and leaders connecting with one another um, with a much greater understanding of some of the sensible stuff that's coming out of cognitive science, which is improving practice in classrooms. So I think overall, in spite of everything, um, it is a healthy and hopeful place to be and we just need to remind ourselves of that. And uh, finally, you said something in passing just as we were walking here about, um, I can't remember the phrase, but something like more intelligent accountability or more sensitive accountability or something. Just talk me through what that might mean. Yeah, so sensible school improvement, really. Um, that... Uh, to have at the forefront of our mind that we're running our schools for our children, not for inspection, and chasing um, the things that might impress some random stranger coming into our setting in our classrooms is the wrong way to go about it. So just always to focus on those activities that support and improve learning and outcomes for children and strip away anything that doesn't add value to that agenda. Neil Carberry, Managing Director at the CBI. Um, you've just been in a session where they've been talking about parents and there was some interesting message about technical education versus university education and generally about education. What have you picked up so far from, from being here in Dubai? So we've been talking a lot about routes into the labour market for, for young people and of course there's, there's two purposes to, uh, business, to people looking at the qualification element of what uh, young people get at school. One is the signal, shows they can do things, and one is the 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 skill side. It shows it, it shows they uh, they have a uh, they have a specific set of skills. Now, of course, technical education is more about the latter. Um, for higher education is more about the uh, is more about the former. At 16 and 18, we're effectively asking young people, advised by their parents, to make quite an informed choice. And that's a choice that perhaps we don't uh, support with good advice and guidance. And, uh, and there's a lot more that I think globally we can do, but also locally. So we're working with Edge Foundation and the Careers and Enterprise Company at the moment on a pilot careers hub in Newcastle. That kind of, of area where we can staple closely the kind, the kind of high skill, high uh, opportunity jobs that are available in each local area to the pathways that uh, young people have at 16 and 18. It's going to be really valuable to helping make sure that young people and their parents make an informed choice. We had our ASCOL conference, as you know, uh, last week, um, and we had 120 leaders from the world of business and employment through the careers and enterprise company, in fact. Um, and one of the things we're talking about is it's, it, it's time for all of us to kind of look at the bigger question about how, what kind of skills do young people need when we're now competing with the robots and so on and so forth. Some people listen to that and they think, you know, it's just a kind of gimmick. From your point of view, what is it we really need to be doing with young people if we are going to outpace the robots and make sure that everybody can have a sense of employment which is enriching? So I think meaning is important in work as well as productivity. And I think 
you, you go back as far as Jim Callahan's Ruskin speech, there was this kind of false dichotomy between learning for work and development for good citizenship, for want of a better term. I think that is starting to alight, and one of the ways it's alighting in the workplace is that technology is helping us to eliminate jobs of process, and frankly, good, because they're boring, and jobs of choice uh, will increasingly dominate. Now, what, what sets apart jobs of choice? Well, yes, you do have to have technical understanding of the world we're working in, and STEM will matter. But humans are just going to have to be better at humaning, yeah. um, and that that whole piece about developing the uh, the rounded individual as well as high quality in the knowledge curriculum is really important to businesses. And I think it's an area where, and I think that this is what we took from the ASCO conference, where schools and businesses can see eye to eye and can co- cooperate really well. Absolutely, Neil Cobbery. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I'm Professor Sam Twizzleton, Director of Sheffield Institute of Education at Sheffield Hallam University. And I suppose the big story, endlessly, too much, and we wish it wasn't, is all to do with teacher recruitment. There's a retention issue as well. But what, what, what's, what's happening? What are you trying to do about that? Well, like everybody um, in, in the South Yorkshire region, we are, we are struggling not only with teacher recruitment, but probably more importantly with teacher retention, particularly, again, as is typical in the first five years, we're, we're seeing a big dropout of people in their early career just not sticking around for long enough. Um, not only does that give, you, give us a, an additional problem with teacher recruitment, because you've got to recru- recruit more teachers to replace them, but it also means they're not getting the chance to get developed and keep getting better, and so we've got a, a kind of pipeline of novice teachers coming in and out quickly of our region and so what we're trying to do about this is something that we're calling South Yorkshire Futures which is actually a very broad set of things not just about teacher recruitment and retention but the specific thing uh, about teacher recruitment and retention is something called Partnerships for Attainment which is all the accredited teacher training providers in the South Yorkshire region actually working really well collaboratively together to join up their resources and their expertise in terms of how we recruit people to teach initial teacher training so we're doing a lot of joint uh, market research market um, marketing our courses Um, and then we are joining together in terms of how we train them so there'll be additional things that we do collectively that are particularly tailored to our region which hopefully make it more attractive but also make them into better teachers Um, as part of that we will be particularly targeting the schools in the region that struggle most with recruiting newly qualified teachers and finding supported ways of getting student teachers into those schools in a way that they can see actually they can be great places to work and it gives uh, them employing head teachers opportunity to see them too without all the hassle that can go with doing a sort of standard ITE um, kind of uh, partnership and then beyond that what we hope to do and we have no resource to do this so quite how we do it we don't know is working with our teaching school alliance partners and multi-academy trust partners to be able to guarantee a sort of seamless join up between what they've had in their initial teacher education and their early career support if they get their first job in the region so a sort of guaranteed NQT RQT programme uh, again tailored to the needs of the region but possibly with the opportunity to begin to specialise towards the end of that period um, so if the QTS reform comes through that will be enormously helpful because that will help. We've got a government and particularly a Secretary of State like his predecessor who's, who's identified that this is the one big issue and from where we are at Ascol, and I'd be interested to see if we've got this right, we would say that there are probably three main ingredients but you might add a, another one into First of all, trying to become a teacher is too complicated yes. it needs to be Absolutely. streamlined. Secondly 
the pay for teachers is an issue. It might not initially be an issue, but it, continue, it does become an issue. And thirdly, then a career strategy, yeah. uh, rather than just being promoted out of the classroom, and rather than having workload added you know, onto your yes. shoulders because of the audit culture. Are we missing anything there? Is there, is there more which kind of explains why we don't get people? Um, I think that you're absolutely spot on in terms of the three things that you identify. Certainly, pay doesn't seem to feature in our market research in the early career. You may probably at the point where you're beginning to have children and have lots more kind of um, domestic commitments, it maybe becomes more so. The career structure pathway definitely is, is an issue, and that's why we want to be able to make, the, first of all, what is already there much more visible. But then to, if we work collaboratively well enough, and we're hoping that we're sort of testing the principles of this in how we're working already, um, to be able to create some of the roles that multi, good multi-academy trusts do, and some teaching school alliances do as, as well, to be fair, where it's possible, so when you're getting towards the end of that sort of three to five, first three to five years, to begin to contemplate roles that, where you might get outside of your own classroom for a period, you might specialise in a subject or a phase or SEN or EAL, something like that, and work across several schools. For me, that would have kept me in in the school sector rather than going into HE which is what I do. I, I agree because ultimately if we if we got the teaching bit right we kept great teachers wanting to teach and you were passing their talent on to the next crowd you'd actually need fewer managers. Absolutely you know. exactly yes yeah um, and, and it's also something about as well as making it's a retention strategy there's something about moving the expertise more strategically around the system allowing it to become expert by specialising so not everybody has to be expert in everything uh, but then that expertise is systematically moved around the system. That's what they do in Ontario, one, one of the higher performing systems globally. That, and I think you know, there's a lot to learn from organisation, well, systems that, that kind of join things up in that way. Finally, Sam, it's quite, quite, quite a lot of the talk around uh, teacher yeah. recruitment and retention is gloomy. Yeah. It sounds to me from what you're saying is if what you're trying to do is to take a system which has fragmented hugely since 2010 yes. and trying to find ways of building collaborat- collaboration yes. in. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and, in, and in doing that, again for our region, but this works anywhere in the country really, sort of unearthing all the really positive messages there are. I mean, there's some fantastic things going on in our region, some really inspirational role models, both in the classroom and in leadership. And they don't get enough of the spotlight. You know, the spotlight's always shone on the problems. So in terms of how we're seeing recruitment to the region now, it's much more about a recruitment to that profession with those role models in, rather than a particular course or whatever, as you say, because that's really complicated. And actually, it doesn't need to be complicated. We can, we can sort that bit out. I'm Anne Murdoch, and um, I've just joined as the General Secretary of PPC. And for those people who don't know what PPC is, give, give okay. us a flavour. Uh, Principals Professional Council. And uh, the Principals Professional Council joined ASCO uh, about three years ago and I was uh, very much involved in that merger. So we'd be delighted to um, see the development of, of PPC into ASCO in the future. So. And you have been a principal of a college over in Newbury. Give us a quick flavour of yeah, that. Yeah, OK. So being principal for 17 years that's a very long time but I loved every minute of it it was great working with the students great working with staff and um, I miss the day-to-day buzz of being a principal but I'm really looking forward to this new role and working with our school so one of the things that has struck me um talking to principals, talking to other people who work in colleges, is in some ways FE has has been kind of a little bit unnoticed in all the discussion about education and yet both in terms of the 
work it does on technical education and academic education, also the social cohesion it brings to communities, I just think is breathtaking. So, I mean, it's going to be great. That, would that be your perspective as well? Well, the Association of Colleges um, does work very hard on behalf of colleges, but obviously there are fewer FE colleges in the system, and more recently, with all the mergers that have taken place, there are even fewer FE colleges. But for all colleges, that's their, their mission to be very much a part of their locality, to be helping their locality with social cohesion, with the development of uh, working with industry, working with local business and uh, helping their students um, improve the economics of the area. And that's what FE colleges do. Many of them are interested in international work as well. There are other things, but uh, working hard to support their local communities and to support local business is FE. Martin Oliver, Chief Executive, Outward Grange Academies Trust. Now, people will have heard of Outward Grange Academies Trust, and I think there's some misinformation sometimes. So there's an assumption there's a kind of formula that is applied to every single school, and if you're ahead in part of that, you have no autonomy. But what's the re- reality? Uh, nothing like that. Uh, the big difference is that my teachers, all of my head teachers and all of my staff, would say that they are the trust. There is no distinction between the trust and the schools. Um, in fact, when people talk to my head teachers about that, they always look quizzically because they are a part of the people that deliver that model. And for you personally, you've stepped into a different role here, being chief executive, on a very large scale, it has to be said. Just give us a sense of what you were doing previously, what your background is, and then tell us, so what's it like in the role you've got now compared to that? Okay, so I've been teaching now for something like 24 years, um, and I was a standalone head teacher in a maintained school. Uh, and then in 2009, I joined Atwood Grange Academies Trust as one of the very first school-based sponsors because I thought it sounded rather interesting. And I went to be the head at Outward Grange. Um, and after I proved myself there, and the, the school came outstanding again, I then went on to run uh, three, four, then five schools as an executive principal. Uh, and then I had some, again, some success at that. So eventually I ended up applying for and getting the post of chief executive three years ago. And that notion of stepping from uh, overseeing the staff and the students in your own school and having that real sense of, you know, this belongs to me. Suddenly if you're doing that on the scale of, let's say, four or five or, or however many you're doing it, what, what's the kind of skill set that you, you need that's different? Well, first of all, strangely, you've got to give yourself permission to not be in school during the day. I can't tell you how strange it was having had, oh, it must have been uh, something like 17, 18 years of driving to the same building and staying there ruled by one belt to then find yourself on the motorway during a school day and not feeling guilty as you're trying to move between academies. That was the biggest permission I had to give myself. Um, and now it's about a balance between ultimately I am accountable so therefore I have to have some sense of responsibility what takes place but then it's about devolving that responsibility whilst maintaining a balance in the accountability Um, and and now it's about coaching and mentoring staff and creating structures that they can all thrive and flourish in. I'm guessing, last, last question, that one of the real senses of satisfaction is that what you're now doing is developing the next generation of senior leaders, aren't you? Oh yeah, I mean, just recently we've been interviewing for assistant principals, vice principals, principals, and just seeing so many outstanding colleagues. And the vast majority of them came from schools that were in special measures. Um, and, and, you know, it's just a nonsense when people talk about, you know, 
a school in special measures, there's always excellence somewhere in every single school. Um, and, and, and it's just a, the best thing for me is, is the joy of uncovering those uh, professionals who just want the freedom to lead. And once you give them that, boy, they can make a big difference. Uh, Jonathan Simons, Director of Policy at the Varkey Foundation. Uh, so h- here we are in Dubai. Uh, just give a flavour of what it is we're doing. So we're here at the Global Education and Skills Forum, which is a huge international conference that runs every year here in Dubai. Got about 4,000 people here this year, really talking about all the issues to do with global education and above all to celebrate the status of teachers. And tell us a bit about the Varkey Foundation. What does it do? The Varkey Foundation is a global not-for-profit set up by education entrepreneur Sunny Varkey and it exists as a foundation to boost the capacity and status of teachers. And we do lots of things. We run teacher training programmes abroad. We have a policy and advocacy arm, which I run. But we're most famous for our global teacher prize, which is where we find the best teacher in the world and give them a million dollars. And that's what's about to be announced here on the stage in about an hour's time. And you've been here over, well, you've probably been here several days, but the conference has been yesterday and finishes this evening. What's particularly struck you about it? Do you know, the thing I really, really like about it is just how many different kinds of people come together. So it's not a typical education conference where it's just policy wonks and people like me. We've got sports stars, we've got corporate chief executives, we've got tech firms, we've got uh, environmentalists, we've got celebrities, we've got YouTubers who I'd never heard of but are apparently very famous. And you know the best thing? We've got teachers from all over the world coming, speaking on panels and being treated like rock stars. Uh, Michelle Thomas, Executive Head Teacher at New Way Federation. Now, when you went to that uh, original school at the heart of that, uh, it was in a pretty grim state. Just kind of explain to us. Yeah, it was in special measures and it was a tricky school because it had been in special measures for 18 months and no one really wanted to take it on because at the time the Secretary of State for Education had his children in there. (laughs) And it was quite a challenge to take that school to where it should be. Now you've done a whole series of things. The bit I'm particularly interested in is technology and how you've used that because as I was saying when I was speaking, uh, the current Secretary of State is saying that it looks like in education that's the one place where technology is added to workload rather than taking it away and what you're doing is something which I think is liberating teachers and liberating learners. So give us a flavour of what you do. 100%. I think the problem sometimes when things aren't working is because you keep adding more and more things on and when I help in some of the other schools who have started to introduce technology, what they've done is they've just keep adding they added technology but they never thought about what they could take away what could they make easier through the use of technology which is why you use technology so for us it was about marking um, and feedback to children how could we make that quicker and simpler in real time rather than sitting with 30 books at the end of the day and that's one of the things that have really reduced teacher workload for us and, and so what kind of things specifically uh, w- would a teacher do? Is it, is it about the equipment they use or the programmes they use? Yeah, so actually it's free. We use, um, when, you, when you have an iPad, you have a feature called AirDrop. So the children actually AirDrop their work to their teacher at different points in the lesson. The teacher will straight away um, mark it and give it feedback and just set an AirDrop it back. So within that moment of real time, these teachers are actually giving feedback. They can record voice feedback on it. They can write on it with a style or their finger if they're that skilled Um, but what that's doing is taking away that learning um, at the end of the day which really is is dead learning because the children aren't getting what they need so what we found is it really impacts on learning much quicker because the children are making more progress because they're getting it in the lesson they're moving on and moving on to the next stage and there's been a lot of mixed publicity hasn't there and and people kind of assuming that because people use ipads and so on it's gimmickry so how do you know it is making a difference 
for us. I mean, our results speak for themselves. Um, all my schools are in the top 2% of the country, um, and they're there because we passionately believe in empowering teachers and empowering staff. Um, technology... Um, you know, it's not going to replace teachers. Uh, you know, I know that's a big debate at the moment that we think technology is going to replace teachers. There's no robots in the school, actually, but what you have is teachers facilitating learning in different ways and children really highly engaged, and that's what technology has brought to us. Stephen Tall, and I work for the Education Endowment Foundation. Can you just remind us what the Education Endowment Foundation is? So we were set up uh, in 2011, and our main reason for being is to try and work out how we can help uh, teachers and senior leaders throughout schools around the country to uh, close the attainment gap. Uh, we have a, a really stark attainment gap in this country. It starts age five, it then gets worse through every successive year of compulsory education and we want to do what we can using evidence not only from this country but from around the world to try and help senior leaders to work out how we can make a difference in schools. You said something I thought was very important up there. You were talking about the toolkit, and you asked how many people knew about the, uh, the toolkit, and pretty much every hand went up, and you gave us a kind of warning about the toolkit. Just re- remind us what you said. Yes, yeah, so the, the, the teaching learning toolkit, uh, we think, is a really good way into evidence about what works in teaching and learning. Um, but the fact that it's now really widely used inevitably gives it a certain responsibility. Um, and... We know that what we're reporting are average effects of different strategies such as feedback or metacognition, all these kinds of topics that we think are of real interest and relevance to teachers and senior leaders. But of course what the averages conceal is that there's this distribution from uh, impacts that are positive when they are deployed through to those which are potentially negative as well. So what's absolutely crucial, and we try and get this across all the time about the teaching learning toolkit, is to look behind the impact figures that appear on the front page. Um, they are averages. And to think how you can use the prompts and the questions and the discussion, which is within the toolkit entries, to inform your own thinking within your school. Because not everything will work for you, uh, but we hope that it will give pointers and, and inspiration for senior leadership teams to go, OK, so generally speaking, feedback appears to be really positive in most settings. How can we apply that in ours uh, and what would we be looking for to see the uh, to see similar impacts? But not necessarily go, okay, EEF says feedback works, all we need to do is put a feedback program in place and automatically our kids will learn. It's, it, I'd love to think it was that simple but we all know it isn't. No, it's a good point. I remember John Macbeth, who was Professor of Education at Cambridge in the latter days, saying that essentially data is a tin opener. It opens up issues for you to be able to explore. Right. One last thing, just one bit of um, evidence which is much quoted and much misrepresented is around teaching assistants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you kind of injected some nuance there. Just, just yep. tell, tell us what we should be thinking about teaching assistants. Yeah, so a uh, reminder of the previous research uh, had shown that uh, despite huge expansion over the last 15 years in the role of teaching assistants uh, that the impact on children's attainment uh, is very disappointing. Um, so it's the toolkit reports an average of plus one month progress, um, but that uh, masks the variations so that very often the impact of teaching assistants on the most disadvantaged children and young people can be negative. However, look below the evidence and what you see is that when teaching assistants are used, for example, as substitutes for classroom teachers, i.e. when you are putting the least experienced professional in the classroom with the kids with the most challenging learning needs, 
go figure what happens. <laughs> However, when uh, teaching assistants are properly trained by their schools, when they are, for example, deployed to uh, teach with structured interventions, perhaps in small group settings, then you can see a real impact from teaching assistants. So almost like with anything else that we report in the Teaching Learning Toolkit, it can be positive. It is absolutely fundamental to school leaders to think through how do they use that within their setting. Teaching assistants can make a difference, but it absolutely is fundamental that we think through the implementation of them in the classrooms. I'm Carolyn Roberts, I'm head of Thomas Tullis School in Greenwich and I'm chair of the Ethical Leadership Commission for us. Now, the Ethical Leadership Commission, tell us a little bit about that. Well, that was set up by ASCAL about a year ago and what we're trying to do is to redevelop the language of ethical debate and ethical thought within education. We've got some of the great opinion makers, the great and the good, um, from all kinds of educational areas, from Ofsted, from HMC, from all over, and we're trying to think about three things. Firstly, the language of ethics. Secondly, how schools could use the language of ethics. And third, how we can build a way of discussing ethical issues within the system. Now, I've been around uh, a long time, and I don't recall us ever really talking about ethics. Uh, uh, and we probably should have done, but why now particularly are we talking about this? I think that we're in a classic postmodern conundrum, really. Uh, I think that everybody ex- expected that somebody somewhere was holding the ethical line on what we do in schools and how schools are run. And people thought that that would be the local authorities, and sometimes it was and sometimes it wasn't. But since the system's been deregulated, now we've discovered that actually no one's really thinking about this. Um, and now that teacher training is very different from how it used to be there's actually no single way of becoming a teacher and so there's no single way of making sure that you've actually given some thought to the basic underpinnings of what we do and that's why we've tried to set this up and as a commission just finally it's it's not that it's their kind of policing the profession people aren't going to be referred to it it's more to kind of set a framework in which we as professionals are working is that is that right yes that's right we're absolutely not interested in monitoring we're not interested in in teacher teacher registration or teacher discipline what we're interested in is just redeveloping a language in which we can hold each other to account for the good of the children and for the protection of the the public money that we use. Just one more thing just before we finish, you you put a picture up uh, there of uh, something which had a very grand title and looked from where I was like a shed (laughs) and now you are a school which you believe strongly in the arts tell us what that picture was of. Well that picture is of a shed um, on our field which we've painted rather beautifully and we call it the Thomas Tallis Centre for Contemporary Arts. We have a a wonderful link with with the Tate as part of their Tate Exchange Programme. We're the only school in that and working with the artist Bob and Roberta Smith, all schools should have an art gallery. We've got an indoor one but we've we've developed an outdoor one as well and we're doing this work with young people from our speech communication and language impairment unit because we decided that it would be them who would benefit the most from really being able to express themselves in art and to explain their art to others. So it's a, it's a wonderful um, project that we've got going with three other schools, all of whom have all of whom have specialist units for autism. Karen Roberts, thank you very much. Thank you. The Ask Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.